We're talking about self-esteem today, something that's been uh, encroached into our society in various ways and uh, various elements of it. So I found the the folks who uh, don't go to a fellowship group, okay, Um, how many go to sojourners? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, we do have a name for them, but I'm not going to tell you what that name is. (laughs) How many go to mainstream? Raise your hand. Okay. Boom, boom. Two. All right. How many go to joint heirs? Joint heirs. Good, good. Uh, How many serve in the ministries around here, children's or something like that? Thank you for doing that. We truly appreciate it. Um, What other groups are there? Grace Life. Oh, yeah. How did I forget that one? Grace Life. Two of my favorite friends um, serve there. Uh, I have I could tell you stories about Phil and I traveling. <laughs> we curl your hair. Uh, I I've gone to India with him about four times, and so uh, we uh, we get to teach and preach through India, and it's been absolutely hilarious to be with Phil Johnson um, to do that. Anyway, uh, any other groups? Cornerstone. Thank you. You know, after four weeks, you sort of forget about all these people. They they're across the way from us. Three seventy. Uh, room is where they are. And uh, I think that takes care of it. Well, anyway, since uh, we've got that out of the way, if anyone needs a cup of uh, coffee, if you need a donut, I think it's the college ministry. What do we call the college ministry these days? Crossroads still? Crossroads. Um, Their pastor happens to be down in uh, Regen, Camp Regen. Pray for the high schoolers. Uh, They're away this week. Uh, The high schoolers are um, hearing Pastor John, I think tomorrow uh, is when they get to hear him. But uh, they've been hearing teaching um, and preaching all week long. And I think they play some crazy games too. I'm not sure. Uh, and so they're, they're doing that this week. But uh, next week, we're looking forward to uh, getting started back with the fellowship groups. By the way, if you're thinking of coming to Anchored, I will be preaching on Zechariah chapter 4, I believe it is. Zechariah chapter 4. Anyway, it's kind of interesting going through prophetic preaching or prophetic writing. Anyway, why don't I pray, and then we can get started. Father God, we uh, are grateful for all that you do for us. Lord, we're mindful that if it's not from your Holy Spirit, it is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And so, Lord, we pray that as we think of this subject of self-esteem, that we would see it in context of uh, what the Bible has to say. It's not about our feelings. It's about what's true, what's right, what's holy. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, I'm still going to do an advertisement. Discipleship counseling class. How many have been through that? Raise your hand. Whoa, look at that. Discipleship counseling class. You see that? Lots of folks have been doing that. Starts September 11th. Can't forget that date. Uh, And it'll be for 12 weeks. It'll be each Wednesday. Wednesday evening, we do it from 6.30 to 8.30. There's child care up to five years old. uh, Because we also have uh, EWG on uh, Wednesday evening, so they do have child care. What will be taught? The basics of theology, you're not going to get into what they get in the seminary, but you're going to get some basics in theology. You have to understand sin. Anybody here a sinner? 
Okay, all the hands should go up. I just want you to know that, all right? We want to know about forgiveness. We want to know about guilt and what that does. I, I had a question asked of me even before we got started. There's this person that's dealing with uh, hoarding and dealing with depression and dealing with anxiety and all of these things. And I, and I said, well, there, there's something behind that. It could be a sin. It could be guilt from something. And that guilt needs to be relieved. And how do you relieve it? You relieve it through forgiveness because God then sets our sins as far as the east is from the west. And uh, those kinds of things. And then the basics of how we help people. And when I say basics, it's basics. It's not until the second level, the third level, that we start getting into how do you handle a marriage? How do you handle a specific issue? And we talk about those things and we bring cases and and we discuss them. So that's uh, discipleship counseling. You'll see an advertisement for it, I believe, on the first uh, Sunday in August, next Sunday. You should see an advertisement for it in the Grace Today and uh, they will tell you where to sign up for it online, or you can sign, come to the class and just sign up there, whichever is most convenient for you. Is there anything wrong with me? Is there anything wrong with my self-esteem? Uh, by the way, that's not a picture of me, <laughs> just so there's no confusion. That's not a picture of me. Last Two weeks ago, I, I did something on Roman Catholicism. I had this picture of this little boy, and and I said, that was me, and some people actually believed it. No, that's not me. Why is this an issue? Why is self-esteem an issue? The reason that self-esteem is an issue is that our government, our doctors, some doctors, are trying to shove self-esteem down our throats. As a matter of fact, I just want to give you something from Time Magazine. It's a few years ago. They uh, did a standardized math test for six different countries, Canada, Korea, Spain, the U.S., um, Britain, and Ireland. Okay, the last question on the test was this. Rate yourself with this question. I am good at mathematics. 63% of the U.S. students rated themselves good at mathematics. 23% of the Korean children or young people rated themselves as good at mathematics. Guess who came in first? The Korean children. Guess who came in last? The U.S. children. At least we feel good about being bad at mathematics. So that's part of what we're we're seeing is the, the backflow from this kind of an issue. I have all kinds of things that I can read for you. I'm going to skip over some of them. But here is an article, The Lowdown on High Self-Esteem. Thinking your hot stuff isn't the promised cure-all. See, that's what they think. If, if you have a high self-esteem, you're not going to commit crime. If you have high self-esteem, you're going to be rich. If you have high self-esteem, you're going to take care of others. That's not what it does. Go down to Beverly Hills. Does low self-esteem lie at the root of all human suffering, failure, and evil? When I ran my first research, by the way, the man who wrote this is not a Christian. The man who wrote this is a psychologist. He says, when I ran my first research study on self-esteem, and listen to this, 1973, way before I was born. (laughs) You believe that? I've got land in Florida. (laughs) 
That certainly seemed to be the case. Psychologists everywhere were persuaded that if only we could help people to accept and love themselves more, their problems would gradually vanish and their lives would flourish. They would even treat each other better. That'd be nice to treat each other better. Not surprisingly, California led the way, establishing a task force for exploring ways to boast boast their self-esteem and to solve personal and social problems. The task force members, like many of us, were undeterred by the weakness and the ambiguity of the evidence established during the test. Then assemblymen and some politician got involved and predicted that low self-esteem could solve this or at least help solve this, crime, that it would take care of crime, that it would take care of teen pregnancy, that it would take care of pollution. I have no idea what that means. School failure and underachievement. It would take care of drug abuse and domestic violence. This particular uh, congressperson, and I'm not going to say who it is, is a prospect predicted on the observation that people with high self-esteem earn more than others and therefore pay more taxes. So they'll help even your budget in the state of California. By the way, we're in the toilet right now. A generation and many millions of dollars later, it turns out we may have been mistaken. Five years ago, the American Psychological Society commissioned me and several others, other experts to be open-minded and through this enormous amount of published research on the subject and to assess the benefits of high self-esteem. Here are some of the disappointing findings. High self-esteem in school children does not produce better grades. Duh. Actually, kids with high self-esteem do have slightly better grades in most studies, but that's because getting good grades leads to a higher self-esteem. Getting those grades does that not the other way around. In fact, according to a study by Donald Forsyth at Virginia Commonwealth University, college students with mediocre grades who got regular self-esteem strokes from their professors ended up doing worse on final exams than students who were told to suck it up and try harder. Self-esteem doesn't make adults perform better at their jobs either. Sure, people with high self-esteem rate their own performance better, even declaring themselves smarter and more attractive than low self-esteem peers, but neither objective tests nor impartial raters can detect any difference in the quality of work. And I could go on. The bottom line, and I'm going to skip most of it, the bottom line is this. After all these years, I'm sorry to say, my recommendation is this. Forget about self-esteem and concentrate more on self-control and self-discipline. That's the bottom line when you come to all of it. The self-love philosophy swept over the country was there for decades. It's still there to some degree. It has become an easy excuse for sins and problems of all kinds. See, they're trying to redefine that issue of sin to make it something else. That's what they want to do is, is to evaporate that sin and get rid of it because that's a problem. How do we answer sin? The root of most problems stems from the poor self-esteem. That's what they would say, poor self-image. Medical magazines warn about doing anything to harm a person's self-image. Scripps Howard News Service said this, quote, lack of self-esteem is the number one problem in America. 
suicide, sexual promiscuity, drug abuse, all of that comes from poor self-esteem. Kids with good self-esteem don't get into that. Uh, No. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Those are the examples I just gave you. I have something here from James Dobson, but, you know, I don't want to take up my time with reading about James Dobson. But his bottom line is this. It's about your feelings. Reasons to be suspect. There are several reasons. Uh, Paul Brownback is an author who wrote a book on self-esteem. I happened to be in an airplane reading my Bible and there's this fellow sitting over there, and he says, are you a Christian? I said, well, yes, I am. And we got into a conversation. It was Paul Brownback. I said, you know, you have a book out that's not in print any longer. I would really love to get it. <laughs> I gave him my card. He sent it to me. My self-esteem went up this, <laughs> through the roof. But in that book, he said this. It was unheard of until recently. This is not something but, uh, but for the last few decades. It has not been held historically by the church. The church should not be buying into this. The Bible opposes it, uh, as has historical Christianity. Fermenity has replaced the Bible in dealing with sin. Therefore, focus on ways to improve self-image. It steals the glory of God, which belongs to Jesus Christ. Um, Jeremiah chapter 9. And by the way, this is not an exposition for sure. Of any of this. But Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24 says this Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. John the Baptist said it so clearly. He must increase, I must decrease. That's what needs to happen. Those who have this self-esteem, the the idea of self-esteem, are trying to increase, not decrease. I have a quote here also from Al Mohler. says this, The idea that self-esteem is a prerequisite to contentment is itself both seductive and dangerous. The Christian worldview completely reverses this cycle. The Christian finds satisfaction not in a sense of self-worth, but in knowing the one true and living God. The gospel makes clear that the Christian's identity is found in Christ, not in self. You see, if you are all about your self-esteem, why do you need God? You see, basically, it's a competing religion. Competing religion, too, um, Christianity. I have a quote here from a psychologist. By the way, he's not a believer either, at least not that I know of. He said this, uh, he explains that low self-esteem or lack of it affects our values, our responses, our goals. Braden defines self-esteem as, quote, the experience of being competent to cope with the basic challenges of life and of being worthy of happiness being worthy of happiness. Folks, I hate to burst your bubble. It's not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. So just so you understand where I'm coming from, 
And, and you know, that's, that's what happens with the, the counseling ministry. People come in with problems, with issues, and, and we deal with them. And, and, and I have lots and lots of counselors that are serving in this ministry. I, I'm, I get excited about it every time I think about it. But they're helping others. Proverbs 27, 17, as one sharpens the other, that's what they're doing. They're helping them to become more complete and competent. The other day I was talking to my wife and, and, uh, and I picked out a couple and she said, oh, they do a lot of counseling for you. Yes, they do a lot of counseling for me. They were in counseling years ago. So that's the whole cycle is that you go through that counseling and eventually you can be used by God to do counseling especially in the areas which you had failed in the past. The self-esteem movement has its roots in the teachings of a humanist psychologist named Abraham Maslow. He claimed that all people have a need for a stable, firmly-based relationships and high evaluation of self. I don't don't buy it at all. I don't have to feel good about myself. I try to. (laughs) I fight that. The humanist psychologist believes in the inherent goodness of man and rejects the concept of sin. Through self-esteem, they are trying to answer the problem of human misery and unhappiness. Have you ever wondered whether you would fit in a particular group? You have. We all have. Well, they like me there. remember going for my high school reunion. I'm not going to tell you which one because then you would know that I was born before 1973. And so I went back for my high school reunion. And I had thoughts, are are they going to accept me? I mean, they accepted me back then, you know, in the old days when I was an unbeliever and and I partied with them. But now I'm a new creature in Christ. Are they going to accept me? My wife and I were there and we found out pretty quickly. After I started to say something about the gospel, they all started the moonwalk, you know. They had to go to the bar. They didn't want to talk to me. Am I going to fit in? Are they going to like me there? By the way, if you come to Anchored, we love you. (laughs) You're certainly welcome. No one wants to be gawked at. Oh, maybe my hair's not in place. Maybe my body's not right. Maybe my intelligence isn't right. My clothes, you know, I get before the mirror and I'm always checking this out, right? No, I'm not. But I know there are some people who do that. As if doing this is going to do any good. (laughs) Some people just want to run and hide when it comes to being in groups. They're afraid to be with people. However, at the same time, we want to stand out from the crowd. We want to be seen. We want people to recognize us. We want to be noticed. David Pallison tells this story of this woman who was walking in his church and he was walking down the hallway like this and he didn't recognize her for three years. She hated his guts. I'm serious. She came up to him one day. I've had it. She began to tell him, oh, that was the day I had a bloody nose. But that's how she didn't get recognized. So she felt bad. Had a high valuation of herself. However, at the same time, we want to stand out from the crowd. We want to be noticed. We want people to be impressed with us. 
We want to be respected. We want to be liked. And we want to be loved. I do not believe that there are many people in this world who just want to be average. Do we have any grandparents in here? Okay. You have super grandchildren, don't you? What happens when they become teenagers? All of a sudden, that's gone. What happened in between, between that cute little thing and now a teenager? You had all these great hopes for them. There is no more complicated thing, folks, than interpersonal relationships. We want to be less controlled by what others think of us. We are wondering, are people watching me, judging me, evaluating me? What are they thinking of me? And we are so often controlled by what other people think about us. And that's the truth, folks. Biblical view of self. Open up your Bibles, please. And I do want you to hold on to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Well, we know what Romans 12, 1 is. It's the transition from all the theology that Paul gave. Remember, that's what we do in the biblical counseling class. We give lots of theology. Now it's translated and transitioned into this is what you ought to be doing. And by the time he gets to verse 3, he says this, Through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. There are two commands here, two specific commands that are here in this verse. And if I may, please, I'm going to translate this literally. It could be translated this way. Do not be high-minded above that which you ought to be minded, but be so minded as to be sober-minded. That more literal translation is very helpful in two ways. First, it eliminates the impression given by the English text that it's okay to think highly of ourselves as long as we don't think too highly of ourselves. Second, it reveals the emphasis in the verse on our thinking. There are forms of the Greek word there, proneo, which means to think, are used four times in the verse. In fact, the verse could be translated like this. Do not think highly above what you ought to think, but think right right thinking about yourself. So the question is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Is it an important one if we have a fully obey uh, the two commands in this verse? This is what begins to happen. Here are the two commands. Eliminates the impression of the English text. We've seen that. And second, it reveals the emphasis in the verse on our thinking. The command in the Bible always is toward humility. It's always toward humility. As I said before, John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. We're going the opposite direction though in this day and age. Everybody wants the limelight. They all want to get out there in front. They all want to be seen. They all want to be recognized. But there's a command there for Christ-like humility. Paul basically says this, do not think too highly of yourself. And again, who do you think you are? Two important considerations made this command necessary in his day and make it equally necessary in ours. Man has, and folks, it includes all of us, 
a propensity for self-love in God's precept of self-denial. Man has a propensity for self-love to take care of ourselves. You all dress very nicely today. That's what you have a propensity is to look good. Yesterday, if you saw me, I was unshaven in my shorts. <laughs> my hair was a mess, right, dear? She could, she could testify to it. Yeah. Man's propensity for self-love. Paul does not mention the possibility of thinking too lowly of ourselves because he knows that our tendency is always to esteem ourselves more than we should. It is for the same reason that the Scripture never commands us to think more highly of ourselves, to like ourselves more, or to love ourselves more. What's man's propensity? This is where it's exposed. It's exposed in Scripture. It's exposed in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. If you want to turn there, you may, but I'm just going to read that verse 3, verse 7. It says, It's then the eyes of both of them were opened. Before that, Adam and Eve are running around the Garden of Eden buck naked, and they don't even recognize that they're buck naked. They don't even recognize that there's something there, okay? But in verse 7, once the curse starts to come, or the, the sin has happened, their eyes had been opened. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed, league, sewed, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They wanted to cover it up. They become self-aware at that point. Verses 10 through 12, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Now, God knew that. He knew what they were going through. He was just making them think about how to answer that question. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, now notice what he said. I did it. Oh, no, the text doesn't say that. The text says the woman who you gave me. It's because of her. Blame shifting right from the beginning. Boom, right out of the chute. It's like the counseling that I do. <laughs> I do husband-wife counseling. It's her. It's him. It's her. It's him. You know, folks, stop pointing the finger at the other person. Point the finger at yourself. The man said, the woman you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Right from the beginning, he's blaming somebody else. Look at what happened with Abel and Cain. Cain didn't like his brother being recognized as giving the better sacrifice. Boom, he kills him. I. this is really tragic. This is tragic. You can only blame that sin on their hearts. You can't blame it on global warming. So it's exposed there. Then it's explained. You look at uh, Matthew 22. It says to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole mind, and your whole soul. Now, some psychologists, Christian in name, say this that that particular verse means that you're supposed to love yourself first before you can even love God. 
Really? Where do you see that? It says to love your God with your whole heart, mind, and soul in verse 37, 38. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And some psychologists, after reading that and seeing that, I'm calling Christian, okay? Notice what I've done here. Say that you have to love yourself before you can love somebody else. Folks, you already love yourself. You don't need to love yourself first. There are only two commandments here. There are not three commandments here. This is what a Christian psychologist said, and this is a quote. It's a command to love yourself. He says, self-love is a prerequisite and the criteria for our conduct towards our neighbor. How can I love my neighbor if I don't already love myself? That's a scary thought. It's a scary thought. Matthew 16, also another scripture. Do I have that written down? Yes, I do. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciple, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Love himself. Oh, no, it doesn't say that in my Bible. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Folks, that's what we do every single day. And if I may say it this way, that's what we do every single stinking day. Because we have tough days. I know you do. We have horrible pain at times. We have great disappointment at times. I don't know about you, but I still have checks and there's no money in the the book, you know? Well, how did that happen? You know, we all have those kinds of days. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. As a Christian, we willingly give up our life now to follow him, not to make sure that I'm taken care of, because it's not about us. It's about him. Go to 2 Timothy. I love this. Paul is is giving an indictment here, folks not on the good people, okay? He's giving an indictment in the second um, letter to Timothy. And he says there in 2 Timothy 3, he says, but realize this, that in the last days, by, by the way, folks, we are in the last days. I want you to know that. I want you to know that. Even if we stop all fossil fuels, we're still <laughs> going to burn up anyway. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self. When Paul gives a list, he generally gives a list with the first thing on that list as being the most detrimental, the most important, whatever it may be, whatever he's writing about. But look at, look at the, the, the rest of that list. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's not a good list. That's not a good list. And if it's at the top of the list with all of the rest of the, after it, we're in trouble because we do have a tendency, folks, 
to love ourselves. We, we, we do that all the time. It's like the fellow who got stopped because he was going too fast. Well, I didn't, said to the police officer, I didn't see the speed limit. Well, well sir, it's, it's 30 miles an hour. You were going 65, you know? Of course you didn't see it because you're going too fast. <laughs> it's exhibited. And, and folks, this is a warning here, Colossians 2.8. Uh, our minds need to be controlled. Our thinking needs to be controlled. We have a society that wants to fill us with all kinds of, and manner of wrong thinking. You know, I, I got to tell you, folks, I, I do watch the television. I watch baseball. But I record it before it's on. So that when it comes to the commercials, I can fast forward through the commercials. I don't like listening to what they're trying to tell me or sell me. But in Colossians 2.8, it says this, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. That's Philippians. How did you get to Colossians, Bill? As soon as I saw that, that's see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Don't let them sell you a bill of goods. Don't let the world tell you the wrong thing. Go go back to God's word and depend upon it. Take the principles from there that we have been given. We've been given everything pertaining to life and God in the second uh, Peter 1.3. We need to begin to employ those in our life. There is no command anywhere in the Bible to love ourselves. Nowhere. There are two commands in this scripture that we just looked at in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 22. Love God, love neighbor. How am I doing in that is the question. How am I doing that? It's exhibited. We see that. Now, when I say it's exhibited, it's from those who have originated this kind of thinking. The, the self-love kind of thinking. Here is where it came from. William James. Bill James. 1842. I think some of you were born before then. No. No. Just kidding. He uh, died in 1910. So it started way back there. There's another fellow. Sigmund Freud. Alfred Adler. And Eric Fromm. He was more modern to us. These are just some of the folks. You see, the idea, folks, of self-esteem as some kind of a healing virtue for us is the product of human wisdom, not of God's wisdom. It's a product that came out of somebody's mind, not out of the Scriptures. Uh, It's echoed by so-called Christian teachers. Now, I'm going to step on toes. I know some of you follow Robert Shuler, right? No, of course not. He said this, quote, self-esteem is the new reformation. Quote, Christian, classical theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centered. Wait a minute, what does theology mean? Oh, he said this, classical theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centered, not man-centered. Reformation theology failed to make clear that the core of sin is any of uh, core of sin is any of self-esteem. 
Folks, he was categorically wrong. Another quote from him, and you need to hear this, sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. All of this that has been said here by Schuler is an outright denial of the doctrine of depravity. I hate to tell you, but you're all sinners. You are born sinners. You live as sinners. And you need to be grateful that the grace of God has been extended to you. What is hell? That's the question that was put to him. He said this, it is the loss of pride that naturally follows separation from God. The ultimate and unfailing source of our soul's sense of self-respect. Jay Adams had something to say about this and Jay is in his last days, he said this, if Schuler is right, evangelism must change. We must not tell people they are sinners who need Jesus Christ. We must no longer warn them of eternal consequences for rejecting Christ. No, what we need to start to do now is stroke people and tell them how good they are, not how bad they are. That is change. Now, I mentioned James Dobson. The first time I ever taught this, and I'm going to mention it to you, I was in a class where somebody said, well, you probably haven't read the book. And you know what? They were right. I hadn't read the book. I just got quotes. That week, I went over to the Master's Seminary Library, picked up the book, started reading it, and I came back and I said, I believe it even more now because I read the book. James Dobson says this, I am not a pastor. I am not a theologian. He is a psychologist, is what he is. He wrote this, quote, If I could write a prescription for the women of the world, I would provide each of them with a healthy dose of self-esteem and personal worth. I have no doubt that this is their greatest need. Ladies, that's not your greatest need. Jesus Christ is your greatest need. And he always will be your greatest need. Pre-Christ and after Christ. From Dobson's answers for questions, your questions, he said, there's a quote. Quote, you believe a majority of Americans experience low self-esteem to one degree or another. Assuming that to be true, what are the collective implications of the poor self-concept? This was his answer. It has serious implications for the stability of the American culture because the health of an entire society depends on the ease with which its individual members can gain personal acceptance. Thus, whenever the keys to self-esteem are seemingly out of the reach for a large percentage of people, as in the 21st century America, then widespread mental illness, neuroticism, hatred, alcoholism, drug abuse, violence, and social disorder will certainly occur. Personal worth is not something human beings are free to take or leave. We must have it. And when it is not attainable, everybody suffers. That's so wrong. That's so bad. And and he does some very, very good things, but that's wrong. He goes on and he says this, lack of self-esteem produces more symptoms of psychiatric disorders than any other factor. Can I tell you what the DSM, which is what we looked at last week, 
the DSM-5. I brought it with me. It's a big, thick thing. It's actually thicker than my Bible. But what's in there and what's the explanation of psychiatric disorders, you couldn't even follow it. I'm serious, folks. It is so confusing, so confused, okay? Doctors just pick and choose whatever they want out of that. And if your medicine doesn't work, they give you another medicine. If that one doesn't work, they'll give you two medicines. And if that doesn't work, then they'll give you something else or they'll increase the dosage. Or oh, they keep going around until they find something that you finally go, huh, I'm done. I'm done. But they got a lot of money out of you in the meantime. So it's echoed by certain Christian teachers. The command for a Christ-like humility. God's precept of self-denial. <clears throat> Contrary to our natural inclinations and popular teaching of our day, the clear emphasis in Scripture is that we should love and esteem others more than ourselves. Folks, there are churches built around self-esteem. I hate to say this, but there's some churches with this great band and the smoke going and the lights and all of this kind of stuff. And then you hear not even pablum coming out. It, it, it's, it's weak. And, and, and it's just trying to make everybody feel good about themselves. Uh, there's one pastor who says, I won't use the word sin. Why? Because that doesn't make people feel good about themselves. I'd rather you feel lousy about yourself and go to heaven than feel good about yourself and go to hell. No one can become a Christian unless he recognizes his unworthiness. I remember, I can still remember the the night that I came to Christ in a hotel room in Montreal, Canada. And and I'm reading the scriptures. The only thing I could read in this book Um, hotel because I don't understand French and it was in English and I said I don't deserve you coming after me I knew it immediately I knew how sinful I was we have to understand our unworthiness it's one of the primary aspects of our sanctification is learning to think less highly of ourselves and more highly of others The Bible repeatedly emphasizes the dangers of pride. I'm going to look at a few of these, folks, if you don't mind. Proverbs chapter 11. And frankly, even if you do mind. (laughs) Proverbs 11 too. It says this, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. When you're a prideful person, it brings about dishonor. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. That's what pride brings about. I'm going to skip a few here. We'll go to James 4, 6. But you have the numbers. By the way, folks, the easiest way to do this is take a picture of it. That's what I saw people doing a few weeks ago. James 4, 6. It says this, but he gives a greater grace. 
Therefore, he, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Folks, that's the, the people that he works with. The people who realize that in their own strength, they can do nothing. They can do nothing. But it's only about the, the strength of God, his Holy Spirit. First Peter 5.5. 5 says this, you younger men, be likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a good thing for the young men of the seminary to hear. God gives grace to the humble. Here's a modern proverb. Now, I can't say that this is mine, because that would be proud, wouldn't it? So I'm not going to tell you this is for me. But I think some of it is. But I'm not sure. I, have did, I did this so long ago, I can't even remember. Don't let your pride become inflated. You may have to swallow it someday. Here's another one. Quote, A person who gets too big for his britches will be exposed in the end. Two of you got it. (laughs) Biblical commands for humility. We see those all throughout the scriptures. I've even said some of those. uh, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from self and his empty conceit, but with humility of mind, think more highly of the other person. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself. He's our type that we follow. He's our model for us. Prototokos, I think, is the Greek word. I'm trying to think of that. But that's what we follow. That's what we follow. James 4.10 as well. My Bible just keeps opening up to Zechariah. I don't know why. James 4.10 says this, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. You continually humble yourself. 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he may exalt you at the proper time. Folks, this is not humility. I want to tell you what humility is not. The ability to look embarrassed while bragging or the ability to look properly shy when you are telling people how wonderful you are. You know, we have a problem these days. We have so much social media. I don't even understand all of the places. My, my granddaughter is over for the last week, and I, I discovered Instagram. I mean, who knows? And Pinterest, I have no idea that. And you can post things there, and, and you can have people look at your work and all. Why? Are you kidding me? You look at Facebook, and sometimes I go, some of those people are just talking about themselves. It's all they want. Pictures of themselves. And you know what, folks? Some of them showing how happy they are. I'm counseling some of them. I'm not so happy. So why are they doing that? Make them feel better about themselves. I remember somebody who graduated from this seminary writing a book against something that John MacArthur believed. And I said to John, John, how can that happen? He said, because they're trying to jump up on my shoulders to look bigger. 
That's exactly what it is. Exactly what it is. Trying to pick out one little nuance to pick on to be able to, oh, now look at who I am. They've never published another book and they're not in the ministry anymore. But that's what they did a long time ago. A good definition of humility is thinking less of myself than others and acting for their benefit rather than my own. I'm looking to benefit them, not me. That's called loving your neighbor. That's called serving one another, caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens. It's the one another's of Scripture. That's a good definition of humility. I remember being in India once and and a young lady in my fellowship group, she was 30 years old, just found out she had cancer and she had three years to live. I'm going, "I, I can't do anything about this. And my fellowship group just came around her, got her to the doctor, got her kids taken care of, all back and forth and back and forth. I'm going, wait a minute, they did that without me. You know what, folks? Found out something else. That after I die, nobody's going to remember me either. It's okay. It's okay. Because it's not about me. It's about Christ and what he does in the body of Christ. That's what it's about. The Bible presents to us uh, consummate examples of the humility of Jesus Christ. We see it over and over and over again. I love Philippians 2. Memorized that with my family a long time ago. But that is having that attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Why? He took on the form of a bondservant. Folks, without that, we are zeros. Humility is a choice, though, folks. He humbled himself. That was what Jesus did. His humility led to obedience. That's different than what James Dobson said before. Next, the command for biblical anthropology. Uh, We need to think about ourselves the right way. Paul tells us back in that uh, Romans 12, 3 passage, we have to sound judgment, right thinking about ourselves. Therefore, there is a way we can think about ourselves that will not lead to pride or to despair. And and somebody asked me that question. I I can't tell you how often. So what do you do with a child? Do you just tell them they're a rotten, stinking child? No, of course not. My kid, grandkids are the best in the world. <laughs> no, but you put your arm around them and say, that's a good thing that you're doing. You're going in the right direction. That's pleasing to Christ. That's pleasing to God. It's not because they got the goal in the soccer game and my daughter, granddaughter plays soccer. It's by how they played the game that matters. It's how they played the game. That matters. That's what you pick out. We need to gain an accurate picture of ourselves through an understanding of the biblical doctrine and what we call anthropology. Let's learn what the Bible says about man. Before the fall, we're going to look at that, okay? We're going to look at fallen man without Christ, and we're going to look at man coming to Christ, and then man in Christ. So man before the fall. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. 
it states four times there that man was created in the image of God. Isn't that wonderful that we're created in the image of God? That doesn't go away at the fall, by the way, folks. The term basically indicates that man was created with the ability to mirror. Please understand what I'm saying here. Mirror, reflect God's character. The nature of man revealed something about God, what God was like, because we are similar to him in some ways. Made in the image of God. Here is, if you're taking notes, this is what you need to have. We're similar to God. And it's not explicitly stated, but the following possibilities. Now, please understand, these are possibilities are implied in Scripture. Number one, man is ruling. Man is ruling. He was told to have dominion over the creation. Name the animals, name the plants. I don't know why they always use Latin names for the plants, but they did, okay? They, they give the names for the plants, they give the names for the animals. So it's man is ruling. Man is rational. He's got a mind. He can think. Uh, he has a... Uh, Ability to think through problems. Man is relational. Man is relational. He has a helpmate for him. He has friends. He has children. So he is relational as the Trinity is relational. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the next thing that man was given was he is responsible. He is to till the ground. He is to take care of that. By the sweat of his brow, he will be tilling the ground. So the emphasis in the text, and that's out of Genesis 1, if you want to put down the text, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. There's a contrast between man and animals pretty clearly there. Man is different. Now, what the image of God does not mean, we can know this for sure, what that image of God does not mean. The Bible does not teach that man has some kind of inherent worthiness that makes him deserving of anything from God. Did you hear that? We don't have an inherent worthiness that somehow we deserve something. You know how people get mad at God? None of you here. No one in Anchored, but some other people. Okay, get mad at God because they didn't get what they wanted. They somehow believe they deserved it. You know, it's like the person who comes in for counseling and they say, Bill, I go to Grace Church. I go to a fellowship group. I serve in ministry. I pray every day. I read my Bible. How come I have these problems? And I look at him and I said, probably because the same reason I have problems. Because we're in a problem-filled world. Just accept it. Just accept it. But somehow they think God is supposed to give them something, that they deserve something. God has never been obligated to man in any way. You know what, folks? After Adam and Eve sinned, he could have gone like this and said, we're done. He didn't. And I know why. He hasn't told me. But in reading his scriptures, he receives more glory. 
because now he's working with sinful human beings. And he continues to say, I forgive them. I have mercy on them. And he receives glory because the angels are in heaven and they're looking out. You forgave Bill Shannon again? And you forgave him again? And again, and again, and again? Yeah, that's what he's doing, receiving glory. And as it says in Isaiah 43, 25, and I will not remember their sins anymore. Praise God. Praise God. He's never been obligated to us. There is no legitimate sense in which unsaved people have worth or dignity. Please understand that. I'll give you a little bit of an illustration. We got two men, one man here, one man here. I can't be in both places at the same time. Just realize that, okay? This man here happens to be a police officer. God, I just want to make sure we get him. Maybe he's a deputy sheriff. I don't know. But he's over here and he's saved. This one over here is not saved. I don't know about you, but I like police officers. Not when they're giving me a ticket, but I've not gotten one in California, okay? So I like the police officer because he also protects my home. He, he keeps my wife safe. He keeps my children safe. He keeps you safe, okay? But this one here and this one here are two different people. The unbelieving police officer works for a paycheck. He doesn't work for the glory of God. He only does it for self. This police officer over here, I pray, is redeemed, and and he's working not just for his family and self, but he's working for the glory of God. That's the difference. That's the difference between a Christian and the unbeliever. So just so you understand that, because I know I'm going to get questions on worthiness and worth and all of that. So it's important to note that the word worth can express two different ideas, both in our English dictionary and in Scripture. The first, the dictionary, meaning is, is deserving of esteem, respect, or love. And the second, Scripture, is useful or pleasing to another. Useful and pleasing to another. Yes, he could be pleasing. He could be acceptable in doing his work. He's not doing it for God. Before the fall, man was the second definition. But clearly, he was not the first. God has never been obligated to man in any way. Let's, uh, let me see if I want to go through all of this. Take Psalm 139. I love Psalm 139. You look at Psalm 139, it talks about the omniscience, omnipotence of God. David's there and he says, I, no, he does not. He says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The emphasis being on the made. How do I know that that's where the emphasis is? Because when you get to verse 23, he says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Wait a minute. You said in the Psalm that God knew you in your mother's womb that God knew you from the beginning. How is it that he knows you from the beginning and now you're saying, search me, O God, and know my heart? Because he knows that he always has to take care of that heart. 
that that heart has a problem and that's where all of our sin is generated from. We have desires and imaginations and thinking and all of that kind of stuff. I want, I want, I want. And some will say, I want it even now. So we need to make sure that we have the right kind of thinking. How do we know that there's a continuing of the image of God in man? That's why I am against abortion. Some people say it's because of the murder of a child. Yes, yeah, murder of the child, but it's also a murder of the image of God. Clearly, it's destroying the image of God. Now, I want to take in two scriptures, and this is just going off the um, topic just a little bit, but Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And it just came to mind that I needed to do this. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he was made man. So when there's a shedding of blood, like in abortion, post-abortion, a post-birth or during the in utero, whatever it is, that is still murder, taking of a life. As disgusting as that is, God forgives that sin. God forgives that sin. Once had a lady come up to me and says, Pastor, after hearing you, I'm just wondering, I've had four abortions. Can I be forgiven? Of course you can. Of course you can. We have an incredible God who can forgive over and over and over again. I said, frankly, if you forgave me, you can forgive anybody. James 3.9 says this. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So understand, all people, that's why murder is wrong. And there is worth in that life because God has created that life. Fallen man without Christ. Biblical description, it's pretty hard to to swallow, but a biblical description of man is found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where after the corruption of man we see and. Uh, he says here, Then the Lord saw the, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Folks, that is the unbeliever. Every intent of his heart was only evil continually. It's scary. But that's where the unbeliever is. It doesn't get better, obviously. Genesis 8.21, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's our heart. That's my heart. Before Christ, that's what it looked like. Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. Not mostly dead, all the way dead. 
all the way to Adam. You can look at Genesis 1, I mean, I'm sorry, Romans 1, 18. You can see the, the, the man, he take, takes the creator and changes it for the creation, wants the creation. And we see in verse 24, it says, God gave them over to the lust of their flesh. Verse 26, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. Over and over and over again. That's what happens to man. You know, people say to me, Bill, why do we have so many people that are homeless? Well, functionally, it's because they're taking drugs. Functionally, drugs or alcohol or whatever, or they want people not to tell them what to do. Functionally. Because there are jobs out there, folks, and they could get jobs. But functionally, that's what happens. I think there's another thing at play here as well. That when you continually refuse the grace of God, he begins to say, God gives them over to the lusts of their flesh. God gives them over to those kinds of things. God gives them over. He's done with them. You say, well, why do we go and witness to them? Because there may be some there that will get saved. Yeah, yeah. Romans 3.10, you can see there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. Not one even tries. I was not looking for him. You were not looking for him when he saved you. I, I was trying to run. I was trying to change my life, but not that way. Based on these passages and many others, there is no legitimate sense that unsaved people have worth or dignity. They are not deserving of esteem. The only thing that they really are deserving of is judgment. They are not truly useful to God or to anyone else. This morning we had a little bit of a discussion because just recently a Christian leader came out and said, I'm not a Christian anymore. Can I tell you, he was never a Christian 1 John 2.19, he went out from us because he was never really of us. He went out from us because it shows us that he was never really of us. Christian leader was not a Christian because you can't lose your salvation once you're Christ's. That to me is assuring. That to me is, is helpful for my own heart. Unsaved people have no worth or dignity. They are not deserving of esteem, just judgment. And there is truly nothing good or admirable about them in the sense of salvation. So there is no way unsaved people can legitimately think of well of themselves. The common questions about unregenerate people. Number one question is this. Didn't Jesus die for us because we were worth something? It's a good question. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone will dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
even while we were yet sinners, even while we were yet God-haters, he still died for us. I, I don't get it, but he's God. And that's okay. I can leave it with him. So the, the answer is a resounding no. He didn't die for us because there was something that we were going to bring to him. You know, you think about it. Let's say you sinned this much before Christ. And let's say after Christ, you sinned this much. Did you notice there's not much difference? Now you're more aware of your sin. How much have you given to him? How much has he received? And I look at it at the end of the day and I'm going, wow, there's not a whole lot. So let me take you to that Isaiah 43, 25 passage, which is my encouraging passage for sinners. And it says there in Isaiah 43, 25, now this is God speaking. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And this is not, now this is God speaking. He wipes out your transgressions for his sake. The only way that could work is that he receives glory for it. Now that doesn't mean folks now go out and sin some more so he receives more glory. It doesn't mean that. But that's beautiful. He receives the glory in saving us. And then the next part of that verse, and I will not remember your sins. Again, that is encouraging from my heart. So the second question that comes when we're talking about uh, unsaved people, if unsaved people, this is the question, if unsaved people are worthless, does that mean I should treat them like dirt? No, that would still be a disobedience to God. Love your neighbor. It's like this high schooler got saved and he has two parents who are unbelievers. He said, Bill, should I just tell them that they're worthless? No, don't do that. Those are your parents. (laughs) Those are your parents. We need to speak the truth but it also says in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. We're, we're not to make them feel good about themselves necessarily. We need to witness to them about their need of salvation. Two weeks ago, I did something on uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And I did that because I came out of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and uh, you can listen to that. I believe it's online. And unfortunately, you can't get the overhead to see me when I was a little boy. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I think, important to see the gospel that's there. Man coming to Christ. I do want to leave some time for questions, so we'll finish this up here a little bit faster. God creates radical changes. When we come to him, he changes our thinking. My, my, my thinking when I was in Montreal, Canada, I was, I was planning to get a divorce. <laughs> I, I had business in New York where my, I had sent my wife, and, and, and I was going to tell her, we're done. Well, and when I got saved in Montreal, I went, Woo, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to make this work. So I came to New York and said, let's go on vacation. 
She had never heard that word in the six years that we were married because I was a sales. You had to keep selling, make money. And my functional God was money. And so we came back and we went on vacation for two weeks just to talk about what is God doing? What in the world is he doing? Man coming to, they're radical changes. You begin to see things differently. You begin to see the world differently. You begin to, to respond to that world differently. And that's what we have to offer to others who don't know Christ. There is a recognition of the hopelessness in ourselves. When we respond to the gospel in repentance and faith, we realize our sinfulness, our uselessness, our unworthiness for the first time. We realize that we were deserving of nothing. I, I, I put it this way. I was on a bullet train, and if you've ever been on a bullet train, you know how fast they go, and, and I've been on one, and I was on a bullet train to hell. And God stopped right at the last stop. Say, get off that train. When you get saved, you begin to loathe yourselves. You begin to see how desperately sick you are. You begin to see your sins, your iniquity. You begin to hate yourself and your sin. We don't have time to go through all of those passages there. But there's also something else. Yes, there's a recognition of hopelessness, but there's also a recognition of hope in Christ. That person who was helpless, terminally ill, begins to see Christ differently, begins to see the world differently begin to embrace the promises that they find in the scriptures. They see the resources that are there for those who are repentant. You know, this fellow, this Christian leader who's left the faith, I, I, I say to myself, he, he must have heard these things. Frankly, folks, he was a pastor. He must have preached these things. How is it that he missed these things? Did he not believe it? Did he not believe it? The command for a biblical anthropology. This is man in Christ. There's now a, a, a new description of the Christian. When we look at ourselves as Christians, is the picture any prettier than before? Is there anything good about us now? The answer is yes. So I do want you to feel good. I'm not going to pat you all on your back because I can't get to all of you, but... This I do know for those who are here and believers. God's working in your life. God's doing things. God's changing you. God's making you more like himself. I hope that's an encouragement. You know, as a biblical counselor, I've had people say to me who have been in this church for 15 years, Pastor, do you believe I'm a Christian? And I scratch my head and I say, well, do you have that big E on your back? Maybe we can see the big E. No. I don't know. Where's the fruit? Where's the change? What is God doing? And, and I'm going to give you this one quick little, and I do this in my counseling class, couple, I counseled with them for a full year. I must have met with them 40 times. 
I'm frustrated by this point. I call up an old friend of mine. What do I do? I'm doing something wrong. He says, Bill, do you know if they're Christians? I said, they go to Grace Church. Matter of fact, they're real Christians. They come back on Sunday evening. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. And when he was younger, he had gone to seminary. Didn't wasn't this seminary? He says, Well, why don't you find out if they're really truly believers? Do you know what I did? I said, In your marriage, do you have the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Nine fruit. I got 18 no's. I sat there stunned. A few verses before that, uh, Galatians 5.19. And it has discord, dissension, and all of this, and I'm getting yes, yes, yes. At the end of that verse, it says, and those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I said to them, I fear for your life, eternal. I fear that you don't know Jesus Christ. And the man said to me, Bill, all you are is a fruit picker. Wow. If you say that to me, I'm down on my face and saying, God, please save me. He calls me, all I am is a fruit picker. That morning I had my devotions in John 15, where Jesus says, you shall know them by their fruit. And so I quoted that for him. Folks, you don't want to get to that point. You need to continually grow so that you can say, I am a man or a woman. By the way, I'm not being gender, you know, this is man, mankind. Oh, we can't say that. You can't say a whole lot of things anymore, can we? I mean everybody that's in Christ. That's a new description. God's working in us. He's doing something. We have a new position in Christ. We see that in Romans 4 and 5. We're now justified. We're now forgiven. Praise God. We have a new nature now because we're in Christ. The old man is dead. You go to the Colossians passage there, it uses past tense. It means it's dead. The Ephesians passage is a little bit different. It sort of carries that death into this new life because, yes, we are new, but we still have some of those propensities, some of those habits from our old life. But we're now in Christ. The old man is dead. Romans 6, 16 through 18 and I love Romans 8.1, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not in poquito either. None. Now there's also a, not only a new nature, but there's also a new uniqueness in Christ. He's gifted you, all of you, some gifts, Gifts of service, gifts of administration, gifts of all kind, teaching, giftedness. I'm sorry, I skipped one. The uniqueness in Christ is election and the plan of God that you now have. You know his sovereignty. But the usefulness is the last one, and that's what I was jumping to. Giftedness, now... Folks, I'm going to say that everyone in this room is competent to counsel. 
My wife and I have had that discussion. She said, really? I know what the Bible says. I mean, that's all I can go by is the Bible. But all of you have that giftedness. As a matter of fact, you've all used it at one point or another. I believe that once a wife in here told her husband some counsel, just once. Do you think it's maybe more than that? Yeah, I think so. Do you think a a husband has told his wife something? Sure. Children? Yeah. Parents? Yeah. Of course. We've all counseled some way or another. But as we're in Christ, this new man in Christ, there is a dependence now. And that dependence is on Christ. Notice all of this is this man in Christ is a new position in Christ, new nature in Christ, new uniqueness in Christ, new usefulness in Christ. That's the key word. It's in Christ. All glory truly belongs to God. Even after we're saved, we remain sinful, unworthy people who are still totally undeserving. Anything good that comes out is coming out because of the Holy Spirit working in us. So I cannot claim anything good. I, I sometimes, sometimes have folks say, oh, that was really good. I really appreciate it. Uh-uh. That's got to be the Holy Spirit because it's not me. It's not me. Our position is based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Our new nature is his life and his spirit within us. Our new uniqueness is due to the sovereign uh, will of God, unconditional choice of God. Our usefulness comes from his power and working through us. Remember Ephesians 2.10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He created us for those specific works. So let's go back to Romans 3.12.3. All true confidence must come from God. There's a necessity of understanding that it comes from God. And those repeated references to that same idea throughout Scripture over and over and over again, that I must recognize that I am a wretched man. We have... And I didn't even finish. For those who are in my counseling class, and I told you we had to eliminate one of the classes and come to this, you've got enough of the class, okay? You can count that. Do we have any questions? Any wretched person want to raise their hand? There we go, our first wretched person! After Murray, I I sit down and cry. Murray is the best. Murray, Andrew Murray, wrote a book. Uh, It's a pretty old one. It just was reprinted, okay? So it's in the bookstore. But I, I read that every few years just to remind myself. Um, Yeah, it's not about me. It's about... Christ, and that is an excellent book. Mahaney's book, it's pedestrian. Let's put it that way. I'm not that I'm, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, Murray is deep. 
He also wrote another book of Abiding in Christ that is excellent. And I don't know if that's been reprinted because it's pretty old as well. Um, any other question? And I was just picking on him because he's a friend of mine. I want you to know that, okay? And I knew I could get away with it with him. Somebody else may punch me in the nose. Any other questions? Yes, sir. I, I, I don't have to because that's the world. And the world is, is um, playing to that. That you have. I was in sales. And, and so I know about that positive kind of thinking. Just to give you, um, we didn't have all of that stuff when I was going up in sales. My boss used to say to me, how is it that you sell so much? That's what he said to me. Because you're the only non-Jewish person on the whole st- staff. He called me the token goyim. I said, because I worship money. And that was before Christ. And that's what I did. And, and so it's th- that positive stuff is just because you want to get more. Give me more. Give me, give me, give me. We, you, the salesman used to call one another, give me, give me, give me. You know, that, that was the, the, the whole thing. And that's what it is. And that positive thinking comes out of um, the pit basically. I need to understand who I am in Christ and go from there. Yes? So quickly, you know, how many years have you now been there? 43. Fantastic. Yeah. So I was born before 1973. <laughs> Actually, we met in a nursery. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Any other questions? Yes, sir. I think, well, do something about it. You can. And, 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 you know, that's within the confines of what you can do about it. Um, I think some would say that they'd like to lose another 10 or they'd like to do this or they'd like to do that. Hey, that's okay. You, you, but, you know, this is who you are. Accept who you are. Work within those confines. Can you change a few things? Well, you don't want three years, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I understand that. There's, there's all kinds of genetics that are involved in this. Um, you know, we all have moms and dads and, and grandmas and grandpas that pass down things in the genetics. And so you can't do anything about it. But where you can, you can do it. Um, I think you have, that's what I would call freedom of choice. That's about how you look. You have freedom of choice. I choose to wear a suit. I like it, but only on Sunday. I like a bathing suit on Saturday. Okay. Yes. How would I counsel a child about self-esteem? Oh, bullied. Um... Yeah, and again, I would have to know the child, okay? Um, We had two children, both girls. We were out here on the campus one day, and there were two ladies, oh, about 25 yards away, and they looked at us, and they were starting to laugh. And my little girl, she's about this big, she said to me, Dad, they're laughing at us. I said, how do you know that? Maybe there's somebody behind us 
And they're laughing at that person. I wouldn't let her turn her head to look. I said, well, maybe they just cracked a joke and turned their head. Why do I care what other people think about me? That was my lesson for her right there, to understand, even if they were bullying her to, to some degree, laughing at her, or maybe laughing at me, it doesn't really matter. I don't really care about what people think about me. I care about what he thinks about me. Somebody once asked me if I was going to go out to a church, would I want to have a 100% of the people voting for me as their new pastor? No, I want God to be voting for me as the new pastor. And I'll know it by whether I get there or not. Okay, so I don't need everybody. For kids being bullied today, I think that you need to protect them so they don't get hurt. But beyond that, try to win them to Christ. Speak to that person about Jesus Christ. That's, that's the way, I, I mean, we were always wanting to witness. All right? Well, folks, it is now the time. And you have a wonderful, and we'll see you next week at Anchored.